This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter. Visit enterpriseinspace.org. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome, everyone, to a very special Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated podcast for the original series. I'm the Commodore, Norman Lau, and it has been quite a while since I have been on the mic with my esteemed co-host and colleague and the man who started off this journey with me in January, Mr. Atos. Mr. Atos, how are you? I'm doing pretty great. Um, it's just been getting really busy, really hectic for me right now. Uh, uh, I posted uh, uh, not too long ago in the Babel conference, just like you did, uh, mm-hmm. about uh, everything that's going on. And uh, yeah, today was the first day of classes, got registered, got everything taken care of, and things are starting to, you know, really uh, condense on my end. It ramp up, huh? Yeah. Now, as uh, Jeff said, as you may or may not know, and if people that have been following our development in the Babel conference. There have been some changes in Trek FM, especially when it comes to our hosting responsibilities, both on Standard Orbit and on Warp 5, because Jeffrey is also a co-host there with Floyd Dorsey on Warp 5. And life takes some very interesting and unexpected turns sometimes. And at least in our case, these turns have come for the better. There have been some really significant opportunities that have come and developed in both of our lives. And I think that our listeners would be in agreement that we have to take these opportunities in terms of how they better ourselves and better our lives moving forward. Jeff and I have had tremendous success here at Trek FM. We've had the great opportunity to work with so many fantastic people, Christopher Jones and Matthew Rushing and Floyd Dorsey, The Chief, Ken Tripp, Zach Moore, who's come along with Standard Orbit and all of the people that have been able to give us their guidance and their wisdom and teach us a thing or two about podcasting and all of the support that we've been given here at Trek FM. So it is actually a little difficult to try and put into words how we're coming to terms with this, this being our last show. But as they say in Trek, all good things, dot, 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 and the show must go on, and we just wanted to take this one last opportunity to be able to share with you a couple of things that we want to talk about as this is our final episode as the hosts for Standard Orbit, because Ken and Zach have already made that transition. And I believe, Jeff, we kind of made a little bit of a joke before the beginning of this recording that this is our chain of command episode where we're handing over the command codes to the bridge to the chief and Zach. So 
What would you like to say to all of our listeners before we start getting into more of the fun part of our discussion? Well, uh, for everyone that hasn't uh, uh, read the threads on the Babel conference, um, mine in particular, um, I'm stepping aside uh, from hosting duties both here and on Warp 5 because I'm going back to school. Um, I'm working on my teaching credential for special education, and I'm not going to have the time to work on the podcasts uh, because of my uh, my classes. Uh, it's just going to take up a lot of time, and I had to make a choice, and you know, one day I'm hoping to be able to come back. Uh, maybe I'll be able to pop in as a guest here and there, but, uh, you know, I'm not saying goodbye forever. I'm just, uh, stepping aside for a little bit. And that's a fair point to say. I think that sometimes when, when people were reading our threads, I posted mine and then, and then, you know, Christopher Jones posted your update and then you were able to expound on that a little bit more. This isn't a goodbye to the network. It's just that the network it grows and evolves, and there have been some changes aside from ours, and we wish all of the new hosts and all the people that are coming in to make Trek FM just an even better and more robust experience for our listeners, all the success in the world, because if you look all the way back to the very beginning of the network, there were different hosts, there were different personalities and talents and people that were working behind the scenes, and that's the great thing about Trek FM. It really, it really does represent what is happening in Star Trek and all the different voices that need to be heard. Our combination, our combination, Jeff, was just one of those combinations of voices. And I think that there is a wealth of opportunity for so many other voices from the Babel Conference or from the listeners to step up and join the chorus because that's what Star Trek is. It's this great universal chorus of humanity trying to basically have all of these different voices heard. So it is difficult to step aside because we love what we are doing here so much. But at the same time, though, we have to be able to fulfill our own dreams. And I think we actually did being a part of Trek FM, being part of this community and be able to reach so many people. I hope that your Trekopedia.com has had some, you know, some success and some growth from all the listeners that have been able to appreciate all the hard work that you've put into your own dedicated website. Yeah, I've uh, I've noticed a bit of an uptick uh, ever since uh, we started talking about it here, and I still plan to keep working on it when I can. Um, I'm going to be posting on the Babel conference. You know, I'll be checking that uh, every so often. Possibly not quite as frequently as I have in the past, but uh, I'm still going to be around. As will I. And I hope that the hailing frequencies are still open for both of us to join in from time to time. And we can jump in on a ready room or a 602 Club Warp 5. Heck, I would even love to be able to jump in on a To The Journey or an Earl Grey shows that I or Melodic Treks because... Brendan has such a really funny sense of humor, and I I was able to really get to know him a lot more during Star Trek Las Vegas, and I love his passion and dedication to his show, and I love talking about music. So there are, again, so many different ways that we can stay in touch. Obviously, we'll be able to do it through social media, and we'll be able to tell all the listeners about that later on. But let's go all the way back to when you and I first started here on the network, and do you remember when I first approached you to come on Standard Orbit and why? There's a very, very specific reason why I wanted you to come on this show. 
Man, it's uh, it's been a while. I don't remember your exact uh, reasoning, but uh, um, I think part of it was just because I know so much about the uh, the material, and you know we. I was with you on uh, Warp Five as a guest frequently for a while, and we just kind of had a really good, uh, uh, you know, work. Uh, we worked well together. That's true, and the re- you're exactly right. The reason why that I wanted you to come on here, first of all, we're friends in real life, and we had that really great lunchtime discussion over there at Roundtable Pizza, right across from Dice House Games in Fullerton, and we talked about our strategy, what we wanted to do. It's weird though; that was only in. January, December, January of last year and early this year. And it seems like so long ago, but I wanted Jeff to come on because I knew of his expertise in Star Trek. I love Star Trek, but there's a difference between loving Star Trek and knowing Star Trek. (laughs) I love Star Trek and I will, I will, you know, tout its merits until the cows come home, but I'm a salesman of that kind of nature. But I wanted to have Jeff on because I think he would have, you know, he would have been a great balance of my passion and his passion, but along with his trivia. And if, if you followed us with the Stump Mr. Atos segments of our shows, you will know or have known or have come to known that his trivia is really quite spectacular and his Kung Fu knows no bounds. So hopefully that's something that uh, the chief and Zach, who's also very, uh, very strong at trivia, Jeff, you would be you would be pleased. Um, they will have a strong showing there as well. I yeah, do want to have you on some. I only got, st- I only Go got stumped twice. Yeah, and I th- did those those questions. I think they may have come from Brendan. Maybe um, I think so. Yeah, yeah. He's also really good at trivia. So one day we are going to gamesters of Triskelion, you and Zach and Brendan, and we'll probably score to that music as well. But looking down the the pathway of of our standard orbit experience. I think that we actually did some really great shows and crafted some pretty good content for all of our listeners, especially listeners that may not have had a lot of great exposure to the original series. I think our essentials collection in particular was very good. Did you Mm -hmm. like those shows? Yeah, I, I really enjoyed doing that. Uh, It made me uh, um, just kind of take another look at all the different shows for the entire series and look at him in a different light than I had in the past. And that was a fun exercise. Was there any one in particular, like any one episode that you really, really fought for that you just had to make a case for? And I, I think I know what you may say, but I just, we should have been on bridge mates because I think you and I would have done a really good job being able to kind of finish each other's sentences as a Star Trek couple. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there were there were a, a couple of episodes there, but uh, I mean, for the most part, we we were pretty much in line with each other on uh, what we liked and what we didn't. But uh, there were a couple episodes there. Um, I don't re- recall off the top of my head which uh, episodes I was really championing in those episodes, but uh, yeah, I think Spock's brain was one. Yeah, of them. that was one of them. Yeah, I mean, I think that one gets a lot of undeserved hate. Um, I mean, it, it started off really well and it's just had a really weak ending. I think another one of our goals when we were having that lunch is what we wanted to bring a lot more of season three to the forefront because you and I both felt that season three was, I don't think it was maligned in, in that sense, but I think it was just 
a very unsupported season overall in the fandom. And I think that there's a lot of great content there that still can be mined with canon with Zach. I hope they continue the tradition of looking at more season three episodes and focusing on some of the struggles that they had with season three, because we did so with Spock's brain. We never really got to like other episodes like the cloud minders, which I think was actually a really good episode or exactly the first cloud city, right. And tackling the, um, the, uh, the, the labor issue there. And I don't know. I, I just, I think that a lot of people should really go back to that season, take a look at it for what it's worth. Obviously it was really challenged because they had to essentially duct tape an entire season together after everything was kind of left for scrap after season two and after the, uh, the Betty Joe Trimble letter writing campaign that brought it back. So Please, if you get a chance to watch some original series, don't go to the fan favorites and don't go to kind of like the tried and trues. Challenge yourself and go to season three and find some episodes that you would like to discuss with Standard Orbit. Write those into the Babel Conference and to emails and so on and so forth. Now, the one thing that you and I never got a chance to do in the last couple episodes, Jeff, to talk about the movies because our schedules were really going in opposite directions at that time. So I think you had a chance to do O nine 9 and Into Darkness, and I was able to do my supplementary on those movies. But I would like to take one last chance with you here, since we now are both on the mic together at the same time, and give our listeners our retrospective on, I think, that what you and I have probably agreed on or probably will agree on is that it's the strongest of the three Kelvin-era universe movies. Do you think do you think that we're going to agree on this? Yeah, uh, definitely. Um, out of all of them, it's it's my favorite of the three now. Um, it I used to feel really strongly about uh, you know 09. Um, I really thought that was a great start for that timeline. I felt a little let down by uh, Into Darkness, but Beyond uh, really turned things around for me, and I just really thoroughly enjoyed that movie. So let's talk about the beginning of, of, of Beyond, because you have had a longer relationship with this movie than I have, because you have gone to very significant special events for Beyond. You were at the Paramount premiere, the special premiere with J.J. Abrams and that showing or that I guess that was that premiere event. Yeah, and I then, went to the, uh, the fan event. Yeah, right. And that that kind of started setting in motion kind of like the whole enthusiasm and the whole spiraling of getting the warp engines up in your body and in your spirit and in your mind. And then there was something very special in the goodie bag that you came away with. And what was that? Um, I got free tickets to the premiere at uh, Comic-Con. And that was on a Wednesday night and you did go. Yes. Yes, I did. I How did. was that? How, what was that event like? Oh, that was great. I loved it. Um, they had, you know, they had pretty much the entire cast there. There were a couple uh, significant absences, um, you know, beyond uh, you know the uh, the obvious uh, absences of uh, Ant- Anton Yelchin. Um, mm-hmm. His parents were in attendance, and they had a really touching tribute to him. And it was clear watching the cast on stage during that that they really cared for him. He was like the little brother that they uh, for the whole cast, and. They had uh, like a uh, live orchestra playing the music for the movie, and they were playing 
the music during the uh, um, the memorial that they had for him, and mm-hmm. the cast is up there. They're all hugging each other and trying to hold back tears, and mm-hmm. it was just really touching to seeing him up there. About how many people were outside at this event? Oh, at least a couple thousand, probably between two and three thousand people. Was it comfortable? Was it a comfortable setting? Were, mm-hmm. Did everyone have yeah. access to be able to see the screen, or were there like those drop-down screens that you could see, like large panel TVs? No, it was uh, IMAX, outdoor IMAX screen, and uh, the uh, we we all had like you know the the plastic folding chairs. They were pretty comfortable, mm-hmm. um, but you know sitting in them for a very long time it wouldn't be. But then they handed out uh, seat cover or seat cushions, yeah. and it, they were like printed, you know, these plastic seat cushions with printed on them with star trek beyond premiere and Mm -hmm. uh, we got to take those home too and everyone had pretty good view of the uh um we had a good view of the uh the the whole thing uh the screen good good uh from all different angles um and they kind of got us all ramped up before the movie started by playing the corvamite maneuver Oh, so on this massive screen, you've got the Corvamite maneuver playing and I'm walking in. It's uh, Megan and I both uh, got passes because we both went to the fan event and mm-hmm. each pass had a plus one. So I brought my niece who was visiting from the East Coast and Megan brought her mother. And as we're all walking in, they start playing the episode. And the first thing I see is Spock on the screen wearing the regular black colored uniform, but it's slightly higher for the the first season. Mm -hmm. And he's, you know, shouting orders across the bridge. And I turn to my mother-in-law and I say, uh, Oh, I know which episode this is. This is uh, the Corbin maneuver. And she just kind of looks at me. She's like, how do you know this? (laughs) This is why we call him Mr. Ataz, ladies and gentlemen. Now, I was just like, well, you know, there's only two episodes that had shouty Spock in it. Shouty Spock. <laughs> and and the other one, he was wearing a different shirt. That's right. <laughs> the women. So um, so in this event, you have about, you know, a thousand people out there and you have the IMAX screen. Now, is it dark at this time or is it dusk? How how it good was, was the visibility uh, for the movie? Yeah, the uh, the movie didn't actually start until after dark. Um, okay. They were playing uh, Corbin Maneuver as the sun was going down, and it's going down behind the screen, so visibility was pretty good. Okay. So the movie unfolds. The cast is there after the movie, because we'll talk about the details of the movie in a second. What was the general feeling in the crowd? Was it one of just, wow, what, you know, what was it? Was it general expectation, or was it just like just wow i can't believe this is this is finally the movie that we that we were hoping for yeah everybody that uh, i i could hear a lot of people talking about it as we were walking out and a lot of people are just kind of gushing about the movie as we as we're leaving i think a lot of people were very impressed they i think they had uh, lowered expectations after uh, um in the darkness mm-hmm. and then after that first trailer that came out uh, um kind of put a lot of people off but the second trailer helped a lot i think with uh raising uh expectations for the movie a little bit and i was i tried to go in with as few uh, preconceptions as possible um and 
I just really enjoyed the film. I, I had a really good time watching it, and I thought it was a really good story. I loved how it tied in with Enterprise. I know. And both you and I are big Enterprise fans. So let's go into the movie. Let's jump into the movie. It sounds like that that fan event was really spectacular. You probably saw yeah. a lot of people from the L.A. premiere or the L.A. Yeah. The yeah. L.A. function and that that special event, because obviously everyone got passes to go to San Diego from that. Yeah. Not everyone that went to that was able to go because there were a few international fans from there and people okay. from out of California that couldn't afford to come back again. Right. But uh, a lot of people that went to the first came to the second. That's awesome, though. What a great opportunity to be able to do that and have that as the first viewing for Beyond and just be able to have that, I guess, that shared energy that kind of like moved from chair to chair to chair. And you, know, you can feel mm-hmm. the vibe coming off of people. I mean, that's really something special. And that, sometimes that happens in a crowd and sometimes it doesn't. But I think that since you were with a concentrated group of people that were there specifically, obviously, to watch Star Trek, the vindication was either going to be immediate or it was going to fall flat on its face. And hopefully that's not what people were expecting it. And I don't want people's expectations. I hope I was hoping that at least in my viewing of it, that people weren't going in with lower expectations just because they didn't want to be, they didn't want to be put down or let down, you know, but I think that was not the case for you and I. So when we first saw it, now both of us have seen it twice. Yeah. And the other thing with the, uh, the premiere was uh, just like with the fan event, we had a, a goodie bag at the end, and the uh, like we were saying with the uh, the 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 fan event, I got the goodie bag. It had uh, um, had like uh, the 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 pass to the premiere. Oh it yeah, had, you posted a picture yeah, of this. The I had goodie a, bag I had was a, massive. It, it was it was awesome. Uh, from the from the fan event was great because it had like the digital copies of um, 09 and Into Darkness. It had mm-hmm. um, just a ton of stuff in there. Um, then I went to the premiere and had another goodie bag with tons of stuff, even more. Um, this one, um, it was actual Blu-rays of 09 Into Darkness, the director's edition of uh, Star Trek II, and the Origins collection, which had like mm. about a half a dozen episodes of the original series. Now, was this the the the, the corrected version of two? Or yes, yeah, it oh, was good. The cor- it was uh, the yellow barcode. Okay, good. For the listeners that don't know, there was a version of Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, the the remastered director's cut Blu-ray that came out that had a very significant misfire in the Kobayashi Maru sequence that was actually posted to Trek Movie and to various websites. And then there was a redemption program where you could send your disc in and have that disc replaced with the with the actual correct disc. And then all the people that were at the event, Jeff, now you're saying you have the correct disc. That's correct, yeah. <laughs> it's a good deal because yeah. <laughs> going away with a goodie bag with, you know, another misfire is not what we needed no. in this 50th anniversary. Yeah. And we also got, uh, we got a hat with, it was like a red hat with a blue, uh, Vulcan handsome. Oh, that's where those came from. Yeah. And, uh, okay. t-shirts, um, has the enterprise, but what I thought was interesting. Um, the enterprise on this t-shirt is actually the motion picture enterprise. But okay. then it's got like the the bridge view screen window like on 09 and the Kelvin timeline and you can see the figures of the bridge crew standing on the bridge. No, I've seen posters of that. So it did, yeah. it has the it has the TMP or the refit nacelles, which are more mm-hmm. of the squares nacelles instead of yeah. the larger uh, Kelvin era nacelles. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's the the silhouette of the motion picture refit Enterprise but with the Kelvin timeline window for the bridge. Right. Which I right. thought was an interesting mix. Mm-hmm. And then on the back, it says, uh, you know, uh, 
Star Trek Beyond world premiere San Diego uh, with the date and everything. Now there was um, another, there was another t-shirt. Yeah. And, uh, the t-shirt that I'm wearing right now, I got from the fan event and they actually silk screen those on the spot. So, I mean, these are all pretty unique and, oh. it, um, you got to pick one of two designs. It's the Arrowhead logo with either the 50 for the 50th anniversary or the Arrowhead logo with the, the 50 and a Vulcan salute hand. And I picked the, uh, just the, the, the 50 logo mm-hmm. and you could pick either red, blue or yellow for the color on it. And then on oh. the back, it's got Star Trek beyond and yellow. Wasn't there another t-shirt also that featured the USS Franklin? Um, no, that was a pen that I got, like a little lapel pen. Oh, okay. I gotcha. I gotcha. Yeah. And it's like a little lapel pin of the top view of the Franklin. Mm. Mm-hmm. You didn't want to spoil that too much, you know, before he actually saw it. So obviously mm-hmm. you got all these things probably after the, the movie. Yeah, was this done. was all, this was all after. The USS Franklin quickly becoming one of my top, top line favorite starships. Oh, I love, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm really falling in the, you know, I, I'm, I'm in the same category there. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I really enjoy the ship. Um, I like how it, they worked it into the timeline and they made it fit and it actually, it, it works. I mean, you have to do a little thinking about it, but it, when you think about it, it does actually work. Well, doing a little thinking of Star Trek, that's kind of what we do, mm-hmm. isn't it? You know, you got to kind of, you know. I got a whole website dedicated to that. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. This is true. All right. So let's jump into Beyond. And first impressions. Let's Before we go into the nitty gritty of, cert, of certain details and, and how to work out, because we're going to actually do this for all of you folks out there. We're going to do the arithmetic of why the Warp 4 ship works in canon. Because I had no doubt in my mind that it was already worked out. It makes 100% sense to me. It does to Mr. Atoz. We're going to put it to bed here. But before we do that, let's just cut, get into like, how did it make you feel? How, did the, how do you feel about I it? I felt like the Jim Kirk of this timeline is finally lining up with the Jim Kirk of the original. Okay. Um, was that because was, of the opening scene? Yeah, that was that was a big part of it. I mean, it's kind of the culmination of his his character arc over the last three movies. He started off as this brash, impulsive kid who stumbles into um, basically he stumbles into greatness, but he's in over his head. And the second movie is about him being over his head and realizing it. Finally, he gets in trouble and has to claw his way out. And that causes him to mature into the captain that we know. And that's what we see in Beyond. And that's what I was hoping that we would see in Beyond. Well, that scene where he's talking about kind of like the weight of command, the monotony of the mission, and how he has to not only not only follow orders and make sure that the five-year mission is moving along smoothly for Starfleet and for the Federation, but also how to keep the crew inspired and their morale inspired because there were some really funny scenes in that opening, that opening yeah. montage. I mean, I love the scene where he spilled coffee on his uniform. That would happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, really think about it. We're only seeing Star Trek in moments. We're not seeing kind of like the day-to-day rigmarole of service. And you, you served, and I'm sure the chief would agree with me because he served. I mean, you still go brush your teeth change your clothes, scrub your feet, go to the bathroom, all these kind of things. These are the things that you do on a daily basis, but they're never really kind of addressed mm-hmm. in, in the, in the romance of a, of a serialized show. But now you're kind of like, 
yeah, you settle into this whole, I'm going to open my closet. I'm going to see the exact same set of uniforms for an entire work week of seven days. Why would it change? That was hilarious because when I was in the military, it's the exact same thing. I'd open up my closet and there's just racks of, you know, BDUs and blues. Right. It's a uniform. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's uh, kind of like, you know, it. You, you poke fun of it in certain certain shows like Get Smart. You know, when Maxwell Smart, he would open up his closet and it would be the same suit, you know, over and over and over and over again. But that's his that's a spy uniform. But no, it's let's go back to the reality of the situation is that he's on an extended five year mission. And yes, his uniform has to be the same. He's the mm-hmm. captain. His rank would be the same. Uh, it's, it's gold and it's black, you know, with his with his uh, insignia on it for command. That's it. But it's mm-hmm. funny that he kind of like, you know, spilled coffee on it or whatever. Then you saw some nice crew interaction and it was nice to see an Asian brother getting in there with a little bit of the relations. I'm just saying. And Chekhov. And Chekhov getting kicked out by, uh, I think that was Fiona Vroom, wasn't it? Yes, of, it was. Uh, Lolani fame and Star yeah. Trek Continues. Yeah, it was. Playing another uh, Orion. Yeah, I thought that was, uh, that, that was pretty funny because it, in the original series, you got Chekhov, who's looking up to Kirk and Spock as his mentors and mm-hmm. taking, following their their example. And in this timeline, Chekhov is apparently following this Kirk's example, and it's a little bit different than the uh, Kirk of the Prime <laughs> timeline. But that's a fair point, and I want to I want to get to that in a little bit when it comes to how this movie emulated a lot more of the spiritual nature of the original series. But I, we can actually touch on that a little bit more here in probably one of the most poignant scenes of the opening third. And that's when Kirk and bones have that really nice dialogue together because this goes all the way back to the cage. I think that people that know TOS know that this scene is so significant because it really is one of the major touchstones of captain Pike's development with Dr. Boyce and how he's like, well, you know, people will tell their bartender a lot more than they would tell their doctor pours him a drink. And then Pike just kind of unfurls the weight of command and what it means to him and how he's getting a little bit tired of all this responsibility. Cause that's what we're leading up to before they get to Yorktown. Yeah. And this was also one of the scenes that they showed us at the fan event. Um, they showed us, uh, they started off with this scene of, of them at the bar and mm-hmm. the whole walkthrough of him recording the captain's log, um, ending with that bar scene. And, it was a slightly different edit that they showed us there. Um, some of the dialogue was a, just a, just tweaked just a little bit. I think it worked a little better in the, the final version. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it, it was very reminiscent of that, that scene and some other scenes. And it was also interesting how um, what Kirk's career decision was at this point in the movie was kind of where he was, uh, it was the, the flip side of where he was in the motion picture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the weariness that came in Star Trek too. I said mm-hmm. this in one of my reports when I first saw the movie, I felt that this was actually more spiritually connected to Star Trek two than into darkness was even with the obvious connection with Khan as mm-hmm. a character. I felt that that whole scene where Kirk was in, when he was in the Genesis cave on, on, on regular, And he says, you know, I feel old and I feel worn out. That's almost kind of like where he is getting to at this stage. And this is this is just after X amount of years of service. What, three years of service in the five year mission? Yeah, they're uh, saying that he was halfway into it. Yeah. So it was interesting that he's already at that point and maybe the rigors of 
space travel and the the, the weight of command uh, on somebody who's was such a hot shot and now he's kind of he's been reined in. Mm-hmm. It started to change him a little bit, and maybe he was just getting a little resistant to that change. So I just really liked how it opened up. It opened up not so much with a bang, but with a lot of really great exposition. Do you agree? Yeah. Yeah. And the opening sequence with the, uh, the alien species that he was meeting with was just hilarious. Um, that, yeah, I like that a lot too, <laughs> but here's a, here's one thing that I had to nitpick about that scene because as we get later on into the movie, we saw what happened with the alien that came in and mm-hmm. the universal translator that was being used because I thought that would have been a really great opportunity for even more comedic effect, uh, comedic effect with, with uh, Chris Pine and with Zoe Saldana if she was there, but she couldn't quite get the syntax and the UT mm-hmm. wasn't working and they were trying it out and it just didn't work. And then all of a sudden Kevin barreled himself down towards them and you saw like the, the, the shenanigans that happened with the obviously difference in scale. That was funny. I love that though. I mean, it was, yeah. it's great. There, there's comedy in there. There's, um, there's some sobering poignancy and there's a lot of really great character development, but let's get into the second third of the movie where the, you know, uh, I don't want to gloss over one thing because I think that there is one thing that actually that happens in Yorktown that was a kind of a hot media point, social media point, And that was the relationship between Sulu and his husband and his daughter and how that kind of blew up a little bit in social media with what happened with George Takei. What did you think of that scene? I thought the scene was perfectly played. I mean, they want to show that, you know, those kinds of relationships are absolutely normal and, you know, that's how it should be showed. And the way that they did it was perfect because he gets off of the ship, he meets up with his husband and his daughter and they, you know, hug each other. They walk off together as a family and we come back to Kirk. He smiles at I this. I love that. And yep. he, he smiles and just continues on his way. Yep. I love that scene. I love the cutaway. He's like, I did my job. I brought him home. He's with his family. That's my responsibility. That's, that's, I think that was kind of the, um, the payoff for him. Mm-hmm. you know, for what he does. He's not just responsible for making sure that the mission is successful. He's responsible for his crew that he's come to, to love and to want to, to protect and bring him home. And that really kind of keeps going into the, the true nature of Kirk. Kirk was really all about, you know, his crew, his ship, the safety. And, and yes, the mission was important to him, but not as important as the people. That's a good leader. That's the, yeah. that's the leader that we want to see. That wasn't the leader necessarily that we had in the first two movies, but it's the leader that he's maturing into and he's getting there. And I think that the, you know, the, the second part of the movie is kind of like where we really see a lot of that develop. But I really like how it ramps up actually pretty quickly after he makes his decision to like, mm, uh, uh, we have to go out. I'll take this as my last mission, but I'm really vying for this kind of like this vice admiralty so I can ride the desk, which was, I thought was an interesting decision. And it felt like that these were those pickup shots that happened. I did think you, so. Yeah. Yeah. Did you feel and like it, 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 it just kind of like, it didn't feel like out there. It just felt like it was a subplot that you knew was a subplot. Yeah, but it, it helped the story. It, uh, um, it it added to the the narrative of the of the overall movie, and I think the movie was better with this part added in than it would be without it. Well, it, it kept that tension between Kirk and Spock going like, you know, what are you gonna do? I don't know. Mm-hmm. What are you gonna do? It's like, well, let's serve. We 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 make a great team, don't we? 
you know, I believe we do. So yeah, there was, it was almost, almost like, um, secrets between a married couple mm-hmm. and how are you going to resolve that later on after, you know, the course of events. But we all know that there was a, a specific plot device in motion to, to entrap Kirk, Spock, the enterprise, and to have them go towards this, this planet where our antagonist was and, and how that all developed. But, and I don't want to go into t- too much detail there, but I remember when you said that you saw the preview screening at the special event and the destruction of the enterprise, did mm-hmm. you get the same emotional impact the, the second time around that you saw it in the full breadth and, and context of the movie? Um, even more so actually, uh, because there was more to that sequence that they didn't show us at the fan event. Um, they showed us maybe half to two thirds of that footage. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they said at the time that they were still working on the effects at that point. They weren't finished. Oh. Uh, and so we, you know, we didn't get to see the finished product yet. And we just saw what they had done at that point. Um, and seeing the whole sequence and all the other scenes tying it together and, you know, the, the struggle of the crew trying to keep everything together, even as things are just completely hopelessly lost, they're still trying to bring a victory out of it. And it's, it was heartbreaking. Um, but it was just totally, uh, uh, a perfect way to do it. You know, I was watching that scene happen. I think it's the first time ever that I can remember either in the TV shows or in any of the movies where I actually saw the warp nacelles and the struts completely dissected from the actual secondary hull. I've never seen that happen before. And then I was kind of looking at it. And I'm like, gosh, that looks a lot like the Kelvin now. Mm-hmm. And I, don't, I think that was I think that there was a dual purpose behind that. Obviously, it was a military tactic in terms of taking out the warp engines mm-hmm. and in doing so you're scratching your head saying that someone knew how to take out their propulsion first. That's a very smart idea. And then secondly, you know, you have the way that they basically said cut off the head, but when the enterprise was fighting and trying to make sure that they were trying to save as many people as they could with escape pods and trying to, to save the crew and, and to salvage as much of the ship as they could, that felt very reminiscent of what happened between the Kelvin and the Narada in 09 mm-hmm. at that, at that very same time. Don't you think? Yeah. And they had drawn that parallel, um, themselves by bringing it up earlier in the film. Uh, you, you have, uh, Kirk talking about, you know, it was his birthday coming up and he hates his birthday because of what happened on that day of his birth Right. and bringing, uh, up the fact that this year he was turning to you know, one year older than his father was, and now, at that same point in his life, the same th- kind of thing happens to him, and he has to make a very similar decision. And I thought yeah. that was really well done. And then they have the the little bit of dialogue where they're on the bridge, and he tells them to get to their Kelvin pods, mm-hmm. which, you know, basically it's tell- saying to me that this is something that Starfleet added in response to what happened to the Kelvin, because if George Kirk had had an escape pod right there on the bridge for him, he might not have died at the Narada. Right. So there was an, there was an escape route for all the senior officers to be Mm -hmm. able to get off and at least, at least attempt to try and save their own lives. Yeah. Yeah. 
Very smart. Yeah, super smart. I think that's something that when you pay attention to these movies, that kind of makes that little itch, you know, in the back of your brain go, oh, that's what that means. Goes all the way back to that movie. So now all these movies are becoming this one cohesive through line. Yeah. And Star Trek has had so much history that it was able to reference itself for decades now. And this is really, um, now that they've got three movies in, this is the first time that they're really fully taking advantage of the fact that they can reference their own history of this timeline. Mm -hmm. Because they didn't do so much of that in In Darkness, but they really do it in this movie. Well, I think that you're right. I think that Simon Pegg and... Doug, because, you know, he was co-writer there and even Justin Lin, they're kind of they I think they had to find ways to really and solidly legitimize this as being part of this universe. Now, this is a whole collected universe in this Kelvin timeline and moving along with the story, they also mined to uh, some very specific, very deep cut trivia that goes all the way back to not just the movies, but all the way back into our own prime timeline as well. Mm -hmm. But before we get to that, though, let's talk about probably two of the biggest, probably the biggest new characters, I think, that have been introduced into the Kelvin era movies, and that would be Jayla and Crawl. Let's talk about Jayla for a second. What did you think of Jayla? Um, I've said before online that, uh, you know, not only do I hope that they bring her back, but the way that they ended it with her being offered a spot at the Academy, I hope they bring her back as a brand new graduated ensign who's taking over to uh, the bridge position for Chekhov. However, they want to write out his departure. Um, You know, maybe say that he was transferred to Starfleet command at the request of Admiral Roddenberry, you know, whatever, Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) you know, the great bird himself asked for him. Right. Um, which is also really cool and yeah. very, it's very sensitive, you know, to do something yeah. like that. Um, but you know, you have her come in and replace him on the bridge, you know, and she would fit right in. She's already basically part of that family of, uh, of this, uh, uh, these films. I mean, seeing them together, all the, the posts that they put on like Instagram and stuff of them together, just clowning around on set. I mean, it's clear that they really gelled. And she's just fits right in with them. I mean, amongst all the alien species that they introduced, which were fantastic, I loved seeing all the the new and uh, variety of aliens and the prosthetics and and the makeup and special effects. I think that she was still able, and and this is Sophia Bateau. I think that she was still able to emulate a lot mm-hmm. and to act a lot through her makeup, and I think that gave her this really great ability to to connect with the audience. But she connected so quickly in the same way that kind of Savick and Valeris mm-hmm. connected in that in that same immediate tether uh, to the to the audience, not just them, but to the cast as well. It, she just slipped in with such ease. And I think the only thing that kind of just made me give me a little bit of pause in terms of character development was, you know, she was just so naturally adept at mechanics and engineering. I'm wondering if that's part of her species or something that she learned for survival a combination of the two, or maybe she just spent a lot of time with technical manuals on the Franklin. Who knows? Well, she said that uh, she learned English because her house talked to her. Right, her so, house talked to her. Yeah, yeah. So maybe she just listened and read all of these, you know, all everything that they had available on the ship, which a lot of it would have been technical journals. Right. Um, and it's and not so, the first time that somebody's like been able to break into a library computer and learn technical manuals. Mm-hmm. And. So, you know, she's been fixing the ship up for who knows how long, you know, probably at least, you know, a decade. 
because uh, she's been there uh, probably since she was a child because she talks about being there with her parents. Right. Um, so she's probably been working on this ship for, you know, a good 10 years or more. And yeah. at that point, she's probably developed a very good understanding of how it works. I mean, she reminded me a little bit of like Ray, you know, from The Force Awakens. A little bit, yeah. She was there. She's a scavenger and she basically had to survive by learning how to repair things so that mm-hmm. she could have defenses against obviously all of these different alien species that were um, abducted by crawl so that he could fuel his machine. And then also because, you know, she she's the only one left, I guess, of her species on that planet. So she obviously had to protect her own species or her, herself in, in that sense. And that obviously made for some great comedy with Scotty because she understood Federation technology even slightly better than he did, especially when it came to this era's technology, the mm-hmm. warp four engine technology, which was fantastic. And that leads us all the way into probably the crux character of this whole plot, which is crawl. And except for one, maybe two bits of, of specific scenery, I did not see that twist coming at all. I didn't until they released a couple of teasers that showed it. And what did they show in those teasers? They showed um, uh, some bits of like the video footage of uh, from the uh, um, the Kelvin. Mm -hmm. I mean, not from the Kelvin, from the Franklin. From the Franklin. They showed some of that uh, that footage. And so you see Idris Elba without any makeup on. And it's like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> and then they also had some bits in uh, um, um, some of the trailers with him using the machine. And, uh-huh. you know, it's not too difficult to put two and two together on that. Right. And I was like, oh, I, I kind of I think I see where this is going. Right. Right. And that's what I saw when I when he used the machine for the first time uh, with on Starfleet personnel when he was basically trying to shake down Uhura and say like, you know, tell me what I need to know or this more, this is going to happen. I saw uh, his, his species changed. You know, he was very much like the, I call him Jacral because he looked very much like a Narn, (laughs) (laughs) but then he changed a little bit because, you know, he absorbed a couple of alien species, you know, with that device, um, which is very much kind of like the Babylon five life taking device. I'm just saying, I'm just, yeah. Oh, and uh, those two crewmen that he took in that scene, Mm-hmm. Um, Simon Pegg has said that that was uh, um, Martine and Tomlinson. No. Yes. Really? Yes. Wow. Okay, so for our listeners out there, bring this all the way down, Ataz. Who are you referencing? Uh, that's from the episode. Uh, um, oh, God. Episode title. Balance of Terror. <laughs> Balance of Terror. Man, my brain fart. <laughs> that's um, all right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they were the couple that was getting married at the beginning of the episode and he died during the Romulan attack in the episodes. And yeah, so this episode or this film, Simon Pegg was saying that that was them that got uh, killed. and Martin and Tomlinson. Yeah. Really? Yeah. What did he say that? How did you find that out? Um, He posted it on like Twitter or something like that. That's so funny. And TOS fans would obviously get that. So yeah, in this timeline, Martina and Tomlinson, not a happy couple. No. Once again. 
So we and, saw that happen yeah. with Carl. Oh, go, go yeah. ahead, go ahead. Um, yeah, and in the original series, she came back um, uh, for uh, shore leave, uh, but they called her uh, Teller in that episode. Right. So, you know, <laughs> I guess uh, she found someone else and got married pretty quickly after. Yeah. Well, not in this universe, <laughs> not in the Kelvin era universe. Uh, no. They're... Their fates have been changed and, by uh, Crawl. Greg Grunberg's character at uh, uh, Yorktown mm-hmm. was Commander Finnegan. Finnegan, I saw that in the credits. <laughs> yeah. Yep, for sure. So somewhere along, it, and it would have been hilarious if he gave Kirk like a hard time mm-hmm. somewhere along the line when Kirk was trying to save the base. But you know, um, that would have been obviously in in character of Shoreleaf. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Finnegan. But uh, Kral was a really interesting character to me because, A, he was played by Idris Elba, who mm-hmm. Idris Elba can pretty much act his way out of anything behind makeup, in front of makeup, doesn't matter, uh, or heck, behind even a digital makeup when he was playing, uh, uh, in, when he was in the Jungle Book. It was uh, Shia Khan. Shere Khan, yeah. And he was fantastic. And I think that when you and I finally saw the revelation of his character and how he fit into the USS Franklin, which was Jayla's house and the reveal of that, I think that you and I both had this collective, oh my God, they just legitimized Enterprise in this movie. The Kelvin timeline films have always had some kind of an Enterprise reference in them to some extent. I mean, the 2009 had the reference to Admiral Archer and his beagle. Mm -hmm. Um, Then uh, there were, um, there was... The NX-01 on Marcus's desk on uh, uh, in Into Darkness, mm-hmm. but that is doesn't even hold a candle to the uh, the Enterprise references in this film. Now, with Simon Pegg being one of the writers, and since he was the one that actually said that piece of dialogue about Admiral Archer's prized beagle, do you think that it was his direct influence that brought Enterprise canon into this movie? I think it's a very good chance. Um, he's said many times over the years how big of a fan of Star Trek that he is, even before he was Scotty. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's writing this, so clearly, I mean, he I, I think that he brought that in and found a way to work it into the story. And it, I think it did a really good job of uh, kind of bridging the gap between Enterprise and the original series. Oh, totally. And for all the Enterprise fans out there, I know that you're probably excited about seeing like this part of the history, you know, the late 2130s to like the 2161, the the mention of the Romulan War, the mention of the Zindi out loud Mm -hmm. in an actual movie that I was just like, I had goosebumps thinking about that. But the the era that we're talking about, the Warp 4 era that's that's steeped in Enterprise and kind of like the birth of like warp technology, not the birth, but more of kind of like the, you know, the the extension of of the Warp 4 to the Warp 5 engine story. But it's not unlike TOS to explore what happened to the ships that they sent out there that were lost. And I think that's a really good plot point here in describing that this movie is, again, another great spiritual connection to the original series storytelling. Because we saw that in a piece of the action with the Horizon and we saw that referenced with other ships that were lost. I mean, the Defiant was lost in the Tholian Web. Uh, Valiant and Nowhere No Man Has Gone Before. Exactly. So now we actually get a chance to go all the way back to something that I think that is actually completely believable in canon, that one of the ships from an older program went out there into space and disappeared. And here it is. And finally, we actually tie all that history together with 
a mystery, which is another great tenant of like the original series, trying to solve the mystery of what happened and how the crew had to come together to try and, and, and put all the pieces together. So I know that we're brush stroking this pretty large, but let's talk more about like just the USS Franklin, the warp four program, captain Balthazar Edison, all of that. Did that make sense to you? Perfectly. Um, I had to stop and think about it for a second, but when I thought about it, it made sense. And the more I thought about it, the more sense that it makes because the episode first flight uh, from Enterprise's second season, it's mm-hmm. a flashback to 2140 and Commander Archer and A.G. Robinson break the warp tooth barrier for the first time. Uh, they're the first humans to go past warp two. Right. And 11 years later, the NX-01 launches. So in that time... Uh, um, go ahead, sorry. Yeah. In, in that time, uh, we've got an 11-year span where somehow they get from warp 2 to warp 5. Now we're saying, they're saying we have a warp 4 ship that's launched, and the design is very similar to the Enterprise, the NX-01. Mm-hmm. And we've got a very short window where it could be developed and built. So it stands to reason that if they use the, the warp 5 project uh, as a basis, and they kind of branch off from there halfway between, you know, breaking warp two and breaking warp five. So we're say 2145. uh, Then we're looking at, uh, you know, about five years where they've got some time to develop this engine, build the ship and send it out. um, And that's quite a a good window there for them to, to launch this ship. And because it's um, probably a, a spinoff of the Warp 5 project, there's going to be some design similarities to the NX class. Sure. And, you know, that's what we see with the Franklin. It's smaller, but it's got the same basic shape. And right. you would expect that from something that's spun out of this other project. You know, they're just taking what we've learned so far and using it to build out the fleet because, you know, at this, like they said in uh, Broken Bow, you know, it's no secret Starfleet hasn't been around that long. Um, so clearly they're trying to build up the fleet and they're trying to, you know, get you know, as many ships out there as they can, trying to get as faster ships where they can and when they can. They're not just going to sit around and wait for 10 years while they finish building the uh, the NX-01. They're going to go with what they have that works now. And that was the Franklin. Exactly. Exactly. I, I, I agree 100 percent. And I think that's one of the things that I th- maybe a lot of fans, when they were watching the film, they weren't really all that exposed to Enterprise when it came out. Because mm-hmm. let's face it, if they were, we would have had seven seasons because our ratings would have been higher. Mm-hmm. You know, but I think that has given a lot of people the incentive to at least go back and try Enterprise. Yeah. And then I think another point of confusion was when Scotty mentions that it disappeared in the mid 2160s. And I think some people thought that meant that the ship was launched at that time. Right. But it's pretty obvious that what they're saying is that the ship was about 20 years old by then, and it had to have been refit at least once. Right. And it's got a brand new looking uh, plaque on the bridge that mm-hmm. says United Federation of Planets on it, right. which wasn't even founded until 2161. Right. The ship was about 15 years old at that point. Exactly. And, and so now we're looking at, the you know, the, the ship got refit probably... 2161, 2162, and um, the, the <laughs> <laughs> I'll 
All, uh, all kinds of weird stuff happening yeah. on this. Yeah. Uh, the ship got refit probably around 2161, 2162, when Starfleet reorganized under the Federation. Mm-hmm. Makos were dissolved and incorporated into Starfleet. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, lots of internal shuffling and restructuring. And it does not surprise me at all that, you know, ships would get refit uh, with, you know, try to upgrade the technology. You know, they've got, you know, at this point, the Warp 5 engine has been around for a good 10 years. They probably try to upgrade it, uh, you know, see if maybe they can incorporate some of that technology into the uh, the Franklin. Right. Um, so, you know, maybe they upgraded the engine. Maybe it was originally a Warp 4 ship, but it when it was lost, it had a faster engine. Right. Um, when it got refit, Maybe it got a new hull registry, and that's why the registry is 326 instead of, you know, 00 or whatever. Um, And that registry by itself is another reference because that's actually a reference to uh, Leonard Nimoy's birthday, uh, March 26th. And I Um, love on the plaque that there's a little bit of what they call in in design is called uh, kerning. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of a kerning space that separates Frank and Lynn because mm-hmm. it's named after Justin Lynn's father, which I think mm-hmm. is brilliant. Yes. And you know, that, that was, that was also another nice touch and going back a bit uh, when uh, Kirk was delivering his log at the beginning, he said it was the 966th day of their five year mission, which 966 September 66, when the original series launched. Right. All cool Easter eggs yes. that are happening all over the place here. This this movie is full of them. I mean, you can't go 30 seconds without getting one. You know, I was thinking like the only thing for me that would have just really sent that whole era of the Warp 4 and, and the costumes, or not sorry, the costumes, but the uniforms that the uh, some of the crew like Spock appropriated was if they were a little bit more in the design aesthetic of what happened in Enterprise. Mm-hmm. Because you're right. They were still in the NX project. They were still wearing the blues and they still had that same kind of motif going on. The Franklin was a little different, but the way I took it was that the Franklin was outfitted by Mako's. It was a Mako's attack ship at one point in time. Um, I'm not necessarily sure if that was the case, but, uh, you know, clearly uh, Edison used to be a Mako before they were incorporated into Starfleet. And mm-hmm. I think probably a large part of his crew were. Yeah. Um, and they were just trying to find their way in a, a new fleet that had a very different mission than their original mission as Makos, because Starfleet was less military and more exploratory, and they were military people. Right. I had this whole, I had this whole idea. I wrote this down. One of my first impressions was that because you know, and and, and because um, Edison had this whole, I'm going to prove to you that you know space is dangerous and even though you've come this long way, you still have need for people like me. Basically, I felt that the Franklin to him was kind of like the, the, the gold watch of your service, mm-hmm. if you will, that he spent all this time and watching his comrades die in the Zindi war, in the Romulan war, and he gave everything he had to the Federation. And they basically, when they disbanded the Makos, they were like, here's the USS Franklin it's kind of a good ship. We still have use for it, but why don't you select your crew, go out there and explore space, see what happens. But they really never gave him his due. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? They, yeah. was like, they, they were like, thanks for your service. 
here's kind of like, you know, a ship that can kind of do some really good exploratory. So we, we put a new engine in it and you can go out there and all that kind of stuff, but have at it. Thanks. Um, basically there's your galactic pasture. We want you to go and explore. And I felt that Idris Elba's, the, uh, the bile inside of him kind of pulled that off. He's like, they basically put me out there to rot mm-hmm. in a rotting ship. Do you feel, did you feel that? That's, that's the yeah. way I felt about his story. Yeah, it's like they gave me a 20-year-old ship and, you know, said, you know, it's been nice having you around, but uh, stay out from underfoot. Remember that scene in First Blood? This goes all the way back to the original Stallone film where he's talking to Sam Troutman. And he said that when I was in the service, you know, that I was I was flying million dollar ships. I could drive a tank and I come to the world and they won't even give me a job parking cars. Mm hmm. I felt that this was the same thing. When he was a Mako, he had state-of-the-art weaponry. He was probably in command of legions of troops. He had everything at his disposal when it was the military. But when they disbanded that and became, like you said, folded into Starfleet and to the exploratory wing of the U.S. of the Federation, his whole way of life has changed. The way that people looked at him probably changed. And they're saying, we don't need your type anymore. But he says, no, you really do, because that's the whole point of why we fought the Zindi and the Romulans. You mm-hmm. think they're just going to go away? Yeah. So I found that really interesting to watch. And he pulled that entire attitude off perfectly. Yeah. So but my love for the for the Franklin knows no bounds. The the, the QMX, the quantum mechanics uh, ship that's going to be coming out soon. I can't wait. I'll sell my kidney for it. I swear. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's wrap up a little bit here with Beyond, uh, the ending of Beyond and and how the whole story kind of just came to a logical conclusion. Did you feel that this story helped serve the overall narrative of the first two movies combined as it wrapped up to the end? And it's kind of like at the very end, the human adventure continues. Yeah, I, I, I felt a lot like that. Um, you know, they had an interruption of their five year mission, but they're still going out there. Mm-hmm. And then the obviously the uh, the construction of a new enterprise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought it was uh, um, interesting. I'm I'm still trying to get used to the new design. I finally started getting used to uh, the old <laughs> one. Um, I uh, it, it took me a while to warm up to that one, and now I'm flying around in one of those in Star Trek Online. But uh, um, now I got a new one to get used to, and um, I, I'm sure it'll grow on me. Um, but I. I can see where they're trying to show that they were trying to incorporate lessons learned from what happened to the Enterprise into this new design because, like, the nacelles and the uh, the neck are a lot thicker. Yeah, they um, look a little bit more armored. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. it's like, you know, it'll be harder to attack the the ship with these weak points. Right. But as you said, because, like, the reference to the Kelvin pod, they're learning. Mm-hmm. They're learning how to defend themselves a little bit better because they weren't they weren't the attackers in that situation. Mm-hmm. They were clearly being attacked. Um, there's one scene, though, and actually, you know, I'll be fair about it. There is an entire thread in this movie that is a very delicately balanced and very emotionally connected tribute to Leonard Nimoy. Yes, it was very well done. Yeah, let's talk about the scene with the very first time when we know that we know that Ambassador Spock, you know, he he passed in this movie. And obviously, you know, it was Leonard's passing that was uh, being referenced. And but there was that scene when wounded Spock was 
with McCoy and he was talking about how we would do things maybe differently mm-hmm. um, and how ambassador Spock, he was this, this man, you know, he, he changed things. He was his own person. He was basically, it was Zachary Quinto's love letter to Leonard Nimoy. Mm-hmm. I thought that was beautifully done. Yeah. It was an amazing scene to watch. And I don't think you could have put a more finer point to that, but I think that was the reason. I think that you needed to basically say that it was it was everyone's thank you to him through Zachary Quinto. I thought it was beautiful. Yeah, it was, like I said, it was just really wonderfully done. And it completely informed everything that Spock did throughout the entire film. Um, his relationship with Uhura and uh, his interactions with McCoy and even uh, you know the the hard time that he was trying to have uh, having trying to talk to uh, Kirk uh, it was all informed by what was going on here uh, you know he gets this news and doesn't take it well I mean, he starts uh, he's basically admits that he's been thinking that you know Spock ended up as an ambassador, you know, basically maybe I should just skip ahead to that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, this is what direction my life would have taken in the original timeline before things got changed. Right. You know, why not just skip ahead? You know, why waste all my time in Starfleet when I can just be an ambassador for the next 150 years? And isn't it and, interesting how yeah. that choice kind of mirrored what Kirk was going through at the same yeah. time? And, and Kirk is also going through this, well, you know, maybe I made this this new choice to be a Starfleet captain because I'm trying to be like my father and you know he's saying well maybe instead of being like him maybe I should just do something else and maybe I'll try being an admiral mm-hmm. and you know we, we saw how well that worked out in the original timeline but uh, right. Um, right by the end of the film they both realize that they're coming to these conclusions for the wrong reasons and they go back and Kirk decides to continue being a captain Spock stays at Kirk's side mm-hmm. because they realize that's really the best place for them. Right. Right. And you know, in the scene where he's turning down the, the vice admiral's position, I can hear that scene where, where Spock is saying that, you know, commanding a starship is your first best destiny. Anything else would be a waste of material. That's that scene. That's why I keep mm-hmm. saying that there's a lot of the spiritual connection of wrath of Khan and, and the way that Kirk is trying to weigh his command and the whole galloping across the cosmos is a game for the young. He's hitting that too early in his stride. Yeah. And Spock's desire to basically skip ahead to the end of the older Spock's life to become an ambassador. He backs away from that when he gets the Spock's, uh, um, his effects and his prized possession. The only thing that he has left from the original timeline that he had to have been carrying on him when he was on the jellyfish and traveled back in time was a picture of him on the bridge of the enterprise with his friends. I was not prepared for that. And you know, they're clearly older and later in life. And that says to spot this younger Spock that wait a minute. Well, maybe I need to stay where I'm at. And that's, I think that's what changes his mind and convinces him to stay. When that scene came on, um, there's that meme of Matthew McConaughey from interstellar (laughs) where he's staring at the monitor and he's getting that he's getting that relayed information, obviously time delayed information from his daughter. He's growing up right before his eyes and 
he, he does that just that brilliant acting job of just falling apart. That was me at that scene. I was not prepared. That scene hit me like a ton of bricks because that's how I, I felt when I saw that cast. I'm like, that's my cast. Mm-hmm. That's my cast. And they actually but, made one of the publicity photos from the from the movies an actual part of canon now. So Star Trek V. <laughs> they legitimized Star Trek V in this movie. Not really, but you know, it was great <laughs> to see them that particular cast shot because I loved him looking at that picture. I loved Zachary Quinto's Spock looking at that, saying that I have so much more to look forward to in service with my crew. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like they're not younger in that picture. You're right. They're older, much older. Mm-hmm. But I, I, it's hard for me to put into words how much seeing that picture inside that movie. I mean, getting the Enterprise references and that history. But seeing that picture, I was not prepared for that because it's just one of those moments, just like seeing all the Enterprise content, that just helps round out the entire experience from being a Prime Universe fan and all of the content that I've known up until this point and how it just relates and seamlessly integrates into this universe for me. I just, uh, ugly man tears. Those are the three words I can describe how I felt at that scene, ugly man tears. Well, it also shows that uh, even though the timeline was changed, everything that happened before in the prime timeline still matters. And, you know, it's, you know, hashtag it's all connected. (laughs) (laughs) Now there's one really fantastic last scene in this movie and that is when Kirk meets with his crew again the crew that he was able to save and the crew was able to the rest of his command crew was able to save off of that planet and they're all waiting for their instructions and they're all kind of you know the reveling the fact that you know we're back and we're with our families and and you know we're safe and we can move on Mm -hmm. but this is where I believe Simon Pegg really understands how to write these characters and I don't know specifically if this line was attributed to his particular part of the writing, but Kirk, the very first thing that he says is to absent friends. Mm-hmm. That is specifically lifted from Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock when he makes the toast to Spock. And to obviously other people that he lost in the process, but definitely to Spock. But then the second toast is to the Enterprise. Mm-hmm. That's what Kirk would have done. And I thought that it was brilliant that that happened. And I'm like, you know what? I feel like this movie and the rest of the franchise, however they go forward, is in good hands because they understand they understand the core competencies of these characters. Because right after that, you see Chekhov trying to mack on a chick, right? And with, that's what, that's what a, Chekhov does. With a great callback to Trouble with Tribbles. Right, uh, exactly. With the whole vodka scotch thing. Yeah. Or the vodka thing. Uh, scotch was invented by a, a little old lady in Russia. Or yeah. in the in the original, it was little old lady in Le- Leningrad. From Leningrad, yeah. But it was still, this is still a Chekhov thing. Mm-hmm. So everyone had their moments. And I, I just really loved how they embraced Jayla at the end. Mm-hmm. And, and then Kirk pulled a couple of strings and got her into Starfleet Academy. And she's still a little bit of a rebel. Yeah. You know, do I have to wear the uniform? And Kevin's still not apparent wearing pants. That's the, yeah, that's right. <laughs> So there's a great just kind of um, a camaraderie that's going on there at the end. It's very natural. I love the fact that you saw the three of them in that last shot together when Bones goes, you really want to go back out there again, huh? (laughs) Wearing his disco medallion of sorts. And there was a line from that that was in one of the previews that got left out of the the final cut. But uh, after 
uh, McCoy says, you're sure you want to go back out there? Simultaneously, Kirk says, hell yeah. And Spock says, absolutely. Hmm. And that was in one of the, uh, or he was like, he basically, uh, Spock is like, yes. <laughs> hmm. And they, they say it simultaneously. And um, that was left out from that, but I saw it in one of the previews. I think that in some of the Blu-ray details that have come out, there are like 30 minutes of deleted scenes mm-hmm. that are going to be, I don't think they're going to be restored. I just think they're going to be available so that you can see, you know, what, what was filmed and what wasn't used. Yeah. Which is going to be awesome, mm-hmm. by the way. And that's coming out December? Um, yeah, I think so. I have, yeah, it, on, so I have it on pre-order. <laughs> maybe we'll uh, put a, um, a secret clause, you know, when we turn over the command codes to Ken and Zach having us on for that Blu-ray review. Mm-hmm. That would be a lot of fun. So overall, Jeff, um, your final analysis of the movie. I'm wanting to go watch it again, honestly. Uh, I, I need to uh, find a, one of the theaters around here that's still playing it and go watch it again. Uh, right. I, I just enjoyed it that much. Um, I just want to keep watching it over and over. Yeah, it has that ability to do that because it rubs everything the right way. Mm-hmm. You don't really kind of feel uh, any kind of discord or any kind of sour notes or or forced you know, uh, issues or missed opportunities. I, as a designer, there are a couple things that I wish could have been more of an extension of Enterprise, but that's just me, and this is completely different, um, a different interpretation of it. But I think that this movie is exactly what the franchise needed. Yes, exactly, and it needed a win, especially with a lot of the consternation and the sorrow that we've had in this 50th anniversary, especially with Anton Yelchin. We needed something to bring the spirits of the Star Trek fans back. And I think that this movie did that. Unfortunately, I don't think it's tracking that way at the box office. But I think that in the hearts and minds of fans, I think that this was the movie that helps bring the entire trilogy of movies full circle. And I really do think that it shows that there was development between the Kirk that was that was obliged to be captain, the Kirk that couldn't figure out what it meant to be captain, and the Kirk that understands how important captaincy is. I think these are the three areas of Kirk that once you take this into context of the entire narrative of the Kirk development in this Kelvin era, I think that fans will probably reconcile, most fans would reconcile the fact that they actually did evolve Kirk into a fully rounded character. Now, that's not to say that everything should be plotted out in trilogies, but the way that Hollywood works nowadays is that you're packaging a trilogy movie. If you're a blockbuster franchise, Mm -hmm. I think so. So do you have any kind of final rating for our fans? Um, I would give it, uh, three out of three 20 person transports. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) And those are massive undertakings, so that is a pretty big score. Pretty big score. Yeah, yep. I, I actually counted, and uh, Scotty said that they could transport up to 20 people at a time, and he only did it three times that we saw on screen, so that mm-hmm. crew got decimated. Yeah, I mean, it really did. And, I mean, even during that, because how many times did Crawl mm-hmm. absorb life, you know, from the crew? Mm-hmm. I mean, not just, um, you know... Uh, 
the unfortunate couple from Balance of Terror. For me, I think that this movie is an absolute tribute to the original series while standing on its own. I think it has just everything that you need in a Star Trek movie. It has great characterization, has amazing effects, and it has a historic, uh, historical value to it, you know, all the way back to Enterprise, legitimizing it all the way in terms of a true through line uh, of all of Star Trek. So I will, I will rate this a full aged 30 out of 30 years of Glenfiddich scotch. Because that was awesome that they stole that from Chekhov <laughs> and a very expensive bottle of scotch indeed, if there were money in the future. Yeah, who would have thought so. he would have been uh, a scotch guy? Yeah. Or a, yeah, a vodka guy. A vodka. Yeah. Right? Who'd, who'd have so, thought? Who'd have thought? Who'd have thought? So, yeah, that was great. I'm glad I had a chance to talk about that with you because as this is our last official show together as the former command crew, that was something that I, I really wanted to put on the books. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a great yeah. movie. I think um, we both enjoyed it. Maybe uh, later on down the line, you and I will take a stab at, at seeing it down at the block or something like that or, yeah. you know, before yeah. it goes. Yeah. And I know, I know the, uh, the, the new crew that's coming in, they did their review of it, but uh, I wanted mm-hmm. to get in on that too. For sure. For sure. Now um, it's about time. We are, let's see, we're not technically in formal wear, but we're about as formal as we're going to get. So this is it, Jeff. We have, uh, completed our mission here for Trek FM. Uh, you and I have had an incredible run. We've been incredibly fortunate again to have been able to do this for our fans and, and for each other. Um, you and I have had this great opportunity to get to know each other a little bit better, become closer as friends and share in this, in this journey that Star Trek. So, um, before we get to our final, final, is there anything that you would like to say, take this opportunity to say, to all of our fans and listeners out there who have had supported us along the way. I just want to thank everyone for uh, all their uh, 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 support and uh, everything over the last, was it eight months now that we've been doing this? And and plus Warp 5 for you. And plus that, so about a year now. Um, It's been phenomenal doing this. Uh, I just wish that there were more hours in the day so that I could continue doing it. But uh, Well, you have an Atavacron. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, uh, unfortunately, there's only so much you can do with even with the time machine. That's true. But uh, um, you know, in the in the fullness of time, I'll have uh, finished off school, and uh, in a couple of years, I'll have more time on my hands again. And just to make sure that all the fans and listeners can stay in touch with you out there, because again, Jeff is a wealth of information of Star Trek, and he is one of the most positive Star Trek fans I have ever met. Jeff can turn any negative into a positive because he believes in the ideals of Star Trek, infinite diversity and infinite combinations. He has explained away so many little disconcerting threads of narratives here, narratives there, and made them work. So if there's somebody that you want to talk to or read about or read the website, Trekopedia, Jeff, make sure that everyone has a chance now to at least stay in touch with you or at least find where all of this great information that you've been working on by yourself on your own time to make sure that the information is preserved the way that you believe needs to be preserved on trekopedia.com. Well, um, I'm going to be continuing to post on the Babel conference. Like I said earlier, um, I'm on there all the time. Uh, I've got my uh, Facebook app on, on my phone so I can still keep in touch on there frequently. Uh, 
and I'm a I'm a donor on Patreon for uh, for the network. Uh, I I'm going to be continuing with that as well. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Harlander. Um, I don't post too terribly frequently, but I do post uh, uh, every so often. And I'm also uh, uh, like you were saying, I have. Uh, uh, my website, uh, Trekopedia, it's called the Grand Unified Theory of Star Trek. I mean, I've taken uh, everything from, you know, the old novels from the 1970s to the FASA role-playing game from the 80s to all the current stuff coming out today and made it all work together. I've, I've found ways to incorporate uh, video games and novels and comic books and everything and tied it all together and try to make it work as best as possible and there's very few times when I've just kind of had to throw up my hands and say you know this just doesn't work and I, I think I can count that on one hand the number of times that's happened um, but uh, I'm continuing to work on that there's still a lot of work left to go on that site and it's it's been a lot of fun I'm going to continue working on that as much as I can but uh, again with uh, my school schedule it's I'm going to have to cut back on that a little bit too, but, uh, I'm also still working on my comic books. Um, those are, uh, um, I'm still drawing when I can coloring when I can, uh, got the first two issues up on comiXology. Um, and, uh, that's, uh, bandwidthcomics.com and, uh, the comic itself, it's called the protectorate and that's on comiXology as well. A busy man, a busy man. And Jeff, from me to you, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for joining me on this journey. I was so thrilled when you accepted the position of co-host for Standard Orbit because when Chris and I talked about the team that was going to come on board and take over for Mike Schindler and Drew Drew Stewart, you were the first person, you were the only person actually on the top of my very, very, very short one-person list. So it's been a great honor for me to have done this with you. I couldn't have done this without you. And I look forward to seeing what happens for you in the future with the Protectorate, with Bandwidth Comics, and obviously with Trekopedia.com. So thank you, Jeff, for everything. Thank you for enriching the show in so many different ways that I couldn't even imagine. Uh, thank you. It's been a lot of fun, uh, and I hope to you know be able to come back and do this again sometime. Definitely. Hailing frequencies are still open, I believe, uh, for our guest appearances when they want to pull some of us old coots out of retirement and uh, get us back on the mic. Well, when they put us out to pasture, I just hope that we fare better than cord. That's right. <laughs> or the warp for Franklin, <laughs> obviously. Um, it's been a fantastic time doing this for all the listeners out there. It's a difficult choice to step away from the mic, but there are different opportunities that have popped up for both Jeff and myself. It was a difficult decision to do so, but in in enriching our lives, I think that that's something that even the listeners would agree that that's the right direction for us. When I started my career here at Trek FM, I think it was late 2014, Chris Jones and I were doing Warp 5 together, and then he gave me basically the full reins of Warp 5 at the very beginning of 2015. I had no idea that it would have blossomed into something that would have taken me all the way to this point in my podcasting career in every serious way possible that I can, that I can muster. I cannot thank Christopher Jones enough for the opportunities that he has not only given me, but this entire new crop of podcasters that came in within those two years and are continuing to come in 
and help backfill all the positions that have opened here on Trek FM for Standard Orbit, now happening for Earl Grey and for Warp 5. And there are spots in between because we still need people that help work and produce and edit and get all of the information to you on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. So if you want to have the opportunity to help Trek FM, please get in touch with Christopher Jones and let you know what you would like to do. What skills do you, you can offer the network? Because this is a network that has been done through an entire volunteer basis. We do this because we love doing this for you. And if you want to help out and extend that and pay it forward, please do so. We can always use your help and your passion. It has been my greatest privilege to be able to work with Christopher and with Matthew, with you, Jeff, with Ken. And now Ken has Zach and working with Zach for that short amount of time with Floyd, with Will Wynn on Warp 5 when we did that together. And forgive me if I have forgotten anybody that I've worked with. This is kind of like the Academy Awards speech and I'm blanking out a little bit because it is a little bit of an emotional time for the both of us. But thank you everyone for helping us and supporting the show within the family of Trek FM because again, we cannot do this without you. We are a team. We are a network and we will move forward as such with new talent and new possibilities. And gathering my thoughts, the only last thing I can really say is just thank you for listening and thank you for supporting us and being patrons and spending your hard-earned money with that support. Our network cannot do this without those funds. And I started off as a patron of the network. Jeff, you started off as a patron of the network. So did Ken. So did many others. And that has helped us build the Trek FM that you are listening today. So please Take a look at the patreon.com slash Trek FM program. Find ways that if you don't like being in front of or behind the mic or in production, there are always financial ways that you can support our network. Find the way that is most comfortable for you and try and see if you can support us that way. If you'd like to stay in touch with me throughout the course of my new projects, you can always find me on Facebook. I will still stay on the Babel Conference as a moderator there because, again, I'm just ending my hosting career here, but I'm not ending my participation with the network. You can also find me on my Twitter. That's Starfighter1701. You can also find me on Instagram at that same handle. And that's pretty much it. I don't really have any other poignant things to say, but I'm sure that could come up with some if I really, really wanted to, or if you want to listen to me blather on emotionally for another half hour. (laughs) So for Jeff and for me, it has been my honor. It has been Jeff's honor. And as I think that they would say in Starfleet service, you and I stand relieved, Mr. Atos. Indeed. So thank you. So thank you, everybody, for listening to Standard Orbit. Thank you for listening to this last show. And as a favor to Jeff and a favor to me, please continue to support Standard Orbit with our new command team of the Chief Ken Tripp and of Zach Moore. They are doing a fantastic job. And please let them know how they can continue to bring even more content to you on Trek FM. I know I'm going to be listening to uh, the podcast uh, on my commute, so I'm looking forward to hearing what they have to bring to to Standard Orbit. 
So thanks everyone for listening to Standard Orbit and please be sure to check out all the different shows that we have for you on the network, all the different shows that you've missed this last past week and just to stay in touch with everyone on the network as we're going through these changes. But for Mr. Ataz and for myself, thank you. Have a pleasant evening and we will see you out there in subspace. Live long and prosper. Captain's Log, Stardate 9529.1. This is the final cruise of the Starship Enterprise under my command. This ship and her history will shortly become the care of another crew. To them and their posterity will we commit our future. They will continue the voyages we have begun and journey to all the undiscovered countries, boldly going where no man, where no one, has gone before. Thank you.